Hi, everybody. Uh, uh, happy Hanukkah, everybody. Welcome. Saying a little bit about the holiday of Hanukkah, which is ultimately the historic holiday, because I think, which is why it's so problematic in Judaism, because it's not in the Bible, so they can't do it that way. It's not really in the Gemara either, not really. So, um, for example, Judah Maccabee, as I said the other day in the podcast, does not exist in rabbinical literature. You won't find the Gemara. So, when we were kids, they used to say, Mi kamocha, b'ilim Hashem, or something like that. But that's baloney, because it's not in any Jewish source. You know, it's not like in the Chumash, or in the Tanakh, or in the Mishnah, or, or Medrash, or something like that. So it shows how obscure it is. So on the one hand, you have something that's very historical. On the other hand, there's no regular Jewish records of it. Okay? And <clears throat> I uh, was doing a podcast about Judah Maccabee the other day, and Rabbi Stephen Weil sent me a um, pod, uh, uh, video of Rabbi, an audio of Rabbi Soloveitchik, who in 1952 was giving a whole speech in Yiddish uh, dissing the Book of the Maccabees. You know? In other words, you can't go by the history, it's very superficial. In any way, history for Jews is not concerned with the externalities, but the internalities. And he goes, all in beautiful Yiddish, by the way. And it's, it has English subtitles if you're interested. And if you're at all interested, I'm saying just Google Salvage Hanukkah, you know, you'll, you'll find it. And I was asking myself, how come he's carrying on for over a half hour against the book of the Maccabees? And then I realized, because everything has a history to it, that's the year, the year before, when it was the book of the Maccabees, first and second, was published for the first time ever by Jews. You see? It's part of the Apocrypha, and therefore that was part of the New Testament, even though it has nothing to do with Christianity. And one of my listeners was a fellow here in the community, nice guy. He's a, a convert to Judaism. It's no secret, Ben Hoff, I mean, he's done nothing wrong. And, he, and uh, I know him, you know, maybe you know him, the handyman. And, uh, and he said, you said that it's part of Christianity and so forth. And, so on, you know, and, we, and that's not true. You know, we didn't have it in my church and whatever. And so all I could do was send him a Wikipedia article. And you see, the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church and this church are all considered canonical part of the Bible. You know, so he said, all right, I learned something about my own religion, you know, uh, my parents' religion, as it were. So it's had this funny kind of uh, history to it. And therefore, what Jew would read the book of the Maccabees in old days? You'd have to want to open up a New Testament. There were, of course, those that did, no question about it. But it's not something that you'd find most from Jews from hundreds of years ago doing. It's not typical. Therefore, uh, our ancestors weren't into this. And all they had was these pseudo-books, like uh, Yosifan and uh, the Miguel Santiochus and things like this, which are famous in the from world, but they're bogus. So there's always a problem, you know, how do you approach the Hanukkah? Now, in 1950 and 51, Dropsy College in Philadelphia, which once upon a time existed and no longer exists, which is founded to be a Jewish graduate school, and just that, you just went there for a PhD. That's all it is. So you got your BA, then if you want to, you can go to Dropsy and go your two years of courses, and you write your thing, and you got your PhD. That's what it was. The only thing is, <clears throat> Dropsy never had any mazel because the, 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 the actual donor, Moses Aaron Dropsy, whose father was Jewish and mother was not, <clears throat> back in the early 1800s in Philadelphia, uh, he grew up 
And his parents said when he's 13 years old, what do you want to be? And he chose to be Jewish, which was unusual in the 1840s, you know? And he even was Orthodox Jew. I mean, not very from, but Orthodox Jew, because he wrote a book, the title of which was Reform Judaism or Deform Judaism. <laughs> so that's where he was. So he never got married, and he left $900,000, which once upon a time was money. And, uh, and they found that, the, so he was a Philadelphia guy. And so in his will, he said, well, I want to make a Jewish college. It has to be in Philadelphia, you see? And uh, said so he started in 1909, but it made no sense because, you know, you have in New York. If you have in New York, all the guys from YU, from the JTS, from the Hebrew Union, you have a natural stream of students. You understand all these people at the, at the theological seminaries. In Philadelphia, nobody lives there. You understand, but it didn't matter, so they never had any mazel. And they always had 20 students total, something like that, 25 students at the most. Uh, not all of whom were Jewish. So they were always looking for a gimmick, <clears throat> how to present themselves PR-wise on the American Jewish scene. And they actually came up with a good idea after the Second World War around 1950, and that was the Apocrypha, which is 17 books that have nothing to do with Christianity really, but the Christians have preserved them in Greek, but really they are Jewish books. Now, they may not be from, some are, some aren't, but they're Jewish books. And so... They've never been published by Jews with a Jewish twist. Now, these people were not religious. In fact, quite the opposite. But nevertheless, it's a Jewish book. So they came out with the first book and second book of Maccabees in 1950-51. So I'm sure it must have been something all the rabbis and stuff read. Here's Rabbi Salvechik saying, don't go by that book. <laughs> you understand? You know, don't go by that book. So I just historicize. See, that's the trouble why historians and philosophers are natural enemies. Philosophers will tell you, no, I'm serious, epistemologically. Because the philosopher is interested in the idea, the speech, the thing itself. And a historian will just contextualize the heck out of it and devalue it in that way. So once you have that, you see the problem with Hanukkah and the Jewish memory. Because in rabbinical culture, in the Freudian culture, they're interested in the idea. You see? That's who we are as a people, in the idea. Even though we would like to know what Avram Avinu had for breakfast, we would, you know, it would, I mean, it's not going to make or break anything. You know, the Devilna going like, like Wheaties or Cheerios, I mean, you know, it's, it, it doesn't matter, but let's be honest. When you read a biography of Moshe Feinstein, they say he liked Cheerios. Say, oh, it's, it's, I could connect with that, you know. It's a human being thing. But that was very far from the traditional Jewish way of looking at things, in which figures are larger than life, and you're not concerned with the little details. So when they came up with the Hanukkah, <clears throat> they're talking about the idea. You understand? So... Yeah, there were Maccabean wars, and yeah, maybe there was some guy named Judah Maccabee. Maybe there was, maybe there wasn't. Maybe this, maybe that. You know, that's important too, but they needed an idea, a grand idea to focus on, and that's where they came with the idea of the oil. You understand? Because then you see something that speaks to everybody. It was dark. They lit the oil. It lasted for eight days. You know, it's like a divine confirmation or something like that. Spin it in every way you want, but that's something everybody can wrap themselves around. Of course, after that, being Jewish, our legal guys got a hold of us. How many candles? <laughs> How large are the candles? But that's, that's what we do. But the, the, that's what we do. But the main idea out there is that they want to focus on a large idea. You see? Problem, of course, is the Gemara doesn't tell you what the idea is. It just said there was a miracle of the oil and so forth. And, um, and consequently, it has become very speculative. You understand? Become very speculative. Now, uh, 
that's what I mean when I say Hanukkah, that we're having this party, and it's ultimately a historical holiday, which is why it's so obscure in, in, um, in Jewish thought. Uh, so you'll hear a lot of different spins on it, and people continue to put their spins on So Rabbi Oberstein came to me in Shul today, and he said, I listened to your talk on Judah Malcolm, it's all very depressing, then what's Hanukkah all about? Uh, which is a fair question, because two years after Hanukkah, the Greeks recaptured the temple. You see? And three years after that, Judah Maccabee himself was killed in battle with the Greeks. Okay? So Hanukkah is 165, and in 160, <clears throat> he was dead. So, you know, that's not the uh, part they tell you in Hebrew school. But it's in the book of Maccabees, but it's, it's not a, 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 a hidden or anything. It's straight in the book of Maccabees. His brothers picked up the ball, and one by one, they were knocked off. Okay? One by one, they were knocked off. Yonah son of this way, Shimon in this way, and so forth. But what emerges is that with all the sacrifice and all the death, they made something, okay? Which was they got the Greeks out of Israel, out of Judea, and we controlled the base of Migdash. Not right away, there were ups and downs, but in the long run. And so it's what you call the shot heard around the world. Because the truth of the matter is we did not win Lexington or Concord either from the military point of view, you know, or Bunker Hill. We didn't win from the world. But in the long run... It triggered a bunch of events that led to the winning. So in the case of Hanukkah, uh, what we're commemorating is you know, an incident which led in the long run to the survival of the Judaism. Otherwise, uh, think about it. The base of English would have run, been run Greek. Most of Jew, Judaism at that time depended on the base of English. There were no shoals, there was no davening, there was no brachas, there was none of that stuff. Right? Some may say that's the good old days, some may say it's the bad old days. But, you know, but uh, all the ceremonies, you know, were in the temple, correct? I mean, th- I'm asking you a following question. What did you do 2,000 years ago in Rosh Hashanah? You, the regular Jewish farmer or something like this. It's no davening, it's no Nisanatokev, it's no, that's it. So wait a minute, you're a farmer, you wake up in the morning, you got to take care of the animals, because that's what a farmer does, correct? And then somewhere along the line in the day, you blow the chauffeur, and you're done. See, in the temple, they have a whole bunch of ceremonies and sacrifices and this, and that, and the other. But you, um, you we, we forget this. <clears throat> Judaism has become much more of a hands-on sport ever since the base of Mish was destroyed, and they replaced it with the synagogue and the individual prayers and the ceremonies. So we, every one of us, is like a mini base amigdash, so to speak. You know, <coughs> Certainly if you're connected with a shoal or a community. right? So the Jewish mother today has a whole bunch of things to do. But at that time, it was all, 99% of it was done by the priests in the temple. So that's why Hanukkah is important. If they would have had their spin on it, then little by little, the Jews would have picked up whatever they get from the temple and we'd all be Hellenists. No, we'd all be uh, worshiping Dionysus. Or, or more likely, we'd all end up as Christians. Because what emerged in, over the course of the se- next several generations <clears throat> from the mixture of the Jewish ideas that were floating out there, and the Greek ideas is the Christian religion. That's what it is. It emerges out of that um, framework, which is why Christianity, at its core till today, is 50% Jewish and 50% pagan, the Greek pagan, uh, or actually Egyptian pagan. So there is one God, but there's three, you know, and one of the things you do is you eat them, and, you know, things like, you know, I mean, these, these are old, but on the other hand, you don't. And so it goes back and forth and forth and back.
this to us is the significance of, 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 I think, of the Hanukkah. It's not so much the miracle of the will per se, but it, it, it's, it's that, you know, what it symbolizes, which was that, you know, the, the, they were going, the Jews weren't going to go down. Okay, the Jews weren't going to go down. At the end of the day, the only thing we can do is out-survive our enemies. We are never strong enough in history, as far as I know, <coughs> to defeat our enemies. It's interesting. Right? Can you think of an enemy <coughs> that we've defeated? You have to go back a long way. <coughs> you know, a mullock or something like that. <laughs> it's been a long time. <coughs> yeah, one guy, you know, Haman. You, you just said it, 2,500 years ago. Okay, <laughs> there, there you go. You see? No, let me put it this way. Did we wipe out the Germans? Did we wipe out the Tsars of Russia? Did we crush the Inquisition? Did we destroy Khmelnytsky? Putin is destroying Khmelnytsky. We didn't destroy yeah, I mean, it. No, all we can say is like this. We were there when you left the scene. We were still there. See? The Rambam has a famous interpretation uh, where it says, your children will be like the dust of the earth. Remember that blessing? Hoya zarcha ka'afarars. So he said, what do you mean? There aren't that many Jews. They're not true. And the Ramos, I guess, no, it means as follows. What's the characteristic of the dust? Everybody walks in the dust, but in the end, the dust walks on you. True or not? Yeah. In the Geras Tamon. He says, everybody walks in the dust, but in the end, the dust walks on you. That's, that's life. Okay? So the Jewish people... Plenty of people walk on us, and, we, and it doesn't seem we can stop that. But the only thing we do is at the end, we walk in and they're, they're gone. So Hanukkah meant that we could now survive the Greeks. That's what you're saying. The Jews could not defeat the Greeks. And the truth of the matter is, I use the word the Greeks. The Jews didn't, it's, 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 an over, it's a yeshivish oversimplification. It wasn't against the Greeks. To be perfectly honest, the Greeks were in Greece. These empires were Macedonian, and they were what do you call uh, junta, like like a, like a banana republic, you know, the, uh, like dictators. You see, they had the Seleucid Empire and the Ptolemaic Empire. They're all dictators that seized power, again, and they held it by force. So, one of those guys, Antiochus the Fourth, he decided, you know, to go against the Jewish religion. Uh, so we have survived him, and we survived all those sorts of things. But did did the Jews? take an oath, we're not going to speak Greek anymore? No. Uh, the, the, in the whole Second Temple period, way after Hanukkah, in most synagogues, see I use the word synagogue, it's a Greek word. Right? Uh, Sanhedrin is a Greek word. You see? I forget, somebody once said, anyone who says Chazal used uh, non-Jewish words is an apicorus. <laughs> you know, because Epicurus was a Greek philosopher. The um, it's a fam- it's a famous line. So, if you went to a synagogue outside of Israel for hundreds of years after Hanukkah, in outside of Israel, in Egypt, in Syria, in Turkey, as we call today Greece, and you went to Shul and Shabbos, Orthodox Shul, the Sefer Torah was written in Greek. And it was read in Greek. It's in the it's a Gemara, you know, in Megillah. Is it, why? Yaftel himli Oh, the Greek is unusually beautiful. Not to you and I today, but to them it was. So they didn't say like this. Oh, as a result of the fact that the Greeks, you know, 
messed over the temple, we're all going to ban the Greeks sort of thing and this and that and the other. They didn't do that. So it wasn't against the Greeks as such. It was against the Macedonian dynasty that was trying to crush the Jews. And we, and, and we didn't defeat them. We out-survived them. So we out-survived them. Because after 100 years, they were gone. Less than 100 years. And we were still there. Okay? Then we ran into the Romans. But then we out-survived the Romans as well. You see? So that's the only chance Israel has today. How could they defeat all the Arabs? There's a zillion of them. And tomorrow be two zillion of them. Yeah, it doesn't work like that. The only thing Israel can do is hold on until some crazy thing happens in the world, and these guys will be gone. That doesn't mean the troubles will be over, but this set of troubles will be over. You get it? This set of troubles will be over. You know, neither you nor I know what the future holds, but it looks like there's going to be big wars between, I don't know who in the Middle East, you know, this group and that group and the other group and the other group. Have we forgotten ISIS? It was only a few years ago, you know? It's, it's always at the brink of something or other. Uh, the Hanukkah, so I guess, d d the light goes on even when it shouldn't go on. You know, it continues to go on, which means you have to do what we can to, to out-survive the other guy. If you out-survive the other guy, then you control the history about who they are. <laughs> you get it? If, if, you, if, you, if you outlive the other guy, so nobody today except specialists... Who in the street in America ever heard of King Antiochus and Tychus? Besides Jews. <laughs> you understand? And they never heard of him. So we'll tell you what kind of a guy he was. <laughs> you get it? Yeah. <clears throat> There's a famous story in, when, in 1920 in Palestine when the British mandate was just beginning. So they started the first newspaper, which eventually became Haaretz. That time it was called Eretz Israel. Then the British said that's too, too much. It's called Haaretz. <clears throat> and at the very beginning, the head of the editorial board was Jabotinsky. In the beginning. And they were trying to get circulation. And so they said, let's have a contest like they used to have in the paper. Whoever can answer the question, we will get a prize. And so they threw this question out, this question out. And one of the weeks, the guy just put out there, what's the longest living rodent? And you know, see what, what the answer is. The longest living rodent. Well, by the time it came to the end of the week, they passed around the table. Does anybody actually know the answer to that question? <laughs> and it said, no. He said, is there an encyclopedia here in Pal... Not in 1920. He said, Jabotinsky, so I guess, let me get this straight. Nobody in this country knows what the longest living rodent is? No. Then it's the squirrel. <laughs> you understand? So nobody knows who Antiochus is, so then we'll tell you who Antiochus was. You see? So that, I think, is the big episode of Hanukkah, and that's the big episode of history in general, because whenever you do history, as I do, what you're really doing is I'm, I'm controlling these dead people. Right? And I'm putting my spin on it, because there's no such thing as not putting a spin on it. It's, that's not possible. Uh, I'm, uh, that's not a statement on my part. That's a statement of fact. History cannot be a science. This we know in the historical profession. Why can't history be a science? Can't get all the data. Tell me about the Battle of Gettysburg. It's not physically possible to do that. Because from a scientific point of view, you'd have to collect every datum of every soldier on both sides over all four days, and probably a little before that as well, which you can't do. Plus, you'd also, if you want to start doing it, all the people you know, in the surrounding areas are affected by the battle and so on. This material is not recoverable. You know, raise your hand if you can remember everything that happened to you last week. And if you can, you're weird. 
right? Well, I always say in the beginning, you know, history by definition has to pick and choose among data. If I always this is what I always tell my students in college, stand up and tell me about your family. Now, unless you're an idiot, you're going to hide things. <laughs> Agreed? Now, watch out. Everything you tell me is true. It's like Shadduchim, you know. Everything you tell me is true. You're just leaving out the part <laughs> that, you know. Father was a great guy. He did this and this and this. Oh, yeah, he also spent six years in jail for, you know, for mail fraud. But, you know, every, but we're not talking about that. Well, we do it all the time. We, say, we all say we are the B'nai Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. We are all the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're also the children of Lohan. Is that true or not? Yeah. We're all the children of Lohan. Now look around and see most of the Jewish people you know. And their midos. Do they represent <laughs> more Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Or do they act <laughs> in business like Lohan? You see? It's enough to ask the question to get the answer. The... Um, this, this, this is what I mean when I say whenever you do history, whether it's a podcast or a lecture or anything like this, you're selecting among the facts. As soon as there's a selection among the facts, there's stuff I'm choosing not to share with you. You see? see you should just know that. I mean, any intelligent person realizes that. But we have a, a mania in, in life in general that we've copied from the science books, which is if it's in a book, it must be so. Yeah. And, no, and you forget the book was written by a person also who made a selection of the facts. <clears throat> you see? Made a selection of the facts. Now, in science, there's nothing as useless as your high school science books, right? <laughs> it's all out of date, you know? Um, to a degree, the past is always changing, and we have this problem in the historical profession. Uh, I, coming from my era, right, which naturally I have to think we got it right. And I look at all these new guys coming down the line now, and I say, this is all wrong, and they're going on this bias and this thing, which they are. Um, you know, but then in order to do that, I have to say, uh, I'm pretending like I don't have a bias. <coughs> you see? But, you know, in college, the students will pick you apart on that. that that's their job. You know? But then again, I get to pick them up. No, I can't do that to them. That is harassment. <laughs> you, you, you can't do it. It's a, it's a, it's a one-way street. Uh, so I just share these ideas to show you that Hanukkah is more than just, you know, about latkes and about dreidels and all that sort of thing. It's even more than, than Ed and Robin being our wonderful hosts who put together every year, you know, uh, a special celebration of Hanukkah. <laughs> you know? And this is besides the adventures that Ed and I have that we cannot talk about. But <laughs> <You know? laughs> <laughs> goes on out of town, goes on out of town. What's that? So, first of all, it's a common misconception that archaeology and history are the same. Archeo no, I'm going to explain what I mean. Archaeology is about things, and history is about narratives. So the question is, you take what they find, does it fit into your narrative or not? Now, now I'm, I'm not saying to you, I'm saying in general. Now, the latest archaeological findings that I know about are the ones about Hezekiah, right? that you have in, in, um, in the Bible, in the Book of Kings. So they kind of confirm, right? The problem we have as religious Jews is there's an absence of archaeology for Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Moshe, and David, Shlomo. Get it? Also for Jesus and also for Muhammad, by the way. Okay? So 
from the from the canons of historicity, you can't say from a historian's perspective, you cannot say any of them ever existed. Now you can't. Put, thank you. That's all right. If I do this, I won't make it. Thank you. It's vodka. Yeah, so I was afraid. <laughs> I know Ira. He says the the canons of historicity, meaning if you go by history, so you can only say I guess I believe Moshe Rabbeinu existed, but I, I can't. I have no evidence. You see. Now you can find it tomorrow, right? You you can't prove Moshe didn't exist unless you use, use anachronism. If you tell me I believe Moshe Rabbeinu flew a rocket ship, so then you have problems, okay? Because it's a, it's anachronism. It's the wrong century. But if you tell me there was a guy named Moses, Moshe, by the way, in Egyptian means a son. Like I have a son, S O N. So I mean that's that's not his full name. Moshe is a, it means. A, when she says she calls him Moshe, she means she said, this is my son. Yeah, I, mean, I, I imagine you probably know that, right? Have you heard of any of these pharaohs, Tutmos and Amenhos? And they all means the son of, right? Ramses is really Ra Moshe, the son of Ra. Okay? Everybody knows Ra from the crossword puzzles. <laughs> right? The, uh, so, you know, that is, is, is when she said she called him, she, meant she said, this is my son. And she said the Nile River was the father. Kiminamai Mishisihu. That's what that means. Okay? But, um, so that's where how archaeology fits in it. Does it, do, you know, does it match the historical narrative? Um, as you know, the Israeli archaeologists are in two groups, A and B. One is the Zionist archaeologists and one is the anti-Zionist archaeologists. The Zionist archaeologists, every time they find a little piece of something. This is David Amel's uh, wedding ring. <laughs> okay, and and I'm going to tell you, I should I should save this for the trip, you know, and the and you know God bless them. The Zionist Israeli archaeologists are good people. They're trying to make the argument that we Jews have been here. You, you understand? So I know why she said that. This is King David's palace. This is uh, Bathsheba's a wedding ring, you know, something like that. They, they do because they're trying to establish, but it, it's not so. No, because they, they, they never found anything with the word David or Bathsheba or anything like this. We would love to have a letter from Abraham to Sarah saying, I'll be late for dinner, you know. I got to go, go to Mount Moriah, you know, you know something like that. You know, we would like to have something like that, but, but, but we don't, not yet, we don't have it yet. So that's a, the anti-Zionists say it's not even a Jewish thing, it's a Palestinian thing. You know, we have no evidence there were any Jews here whatsoever. The whole Bible is baloney. There was no ancient Israel. There was no King David. There was no nothing. It was only the Canaanites, and the Canaanites are still here, and they're Palestinians. You, you, no, no. Well, you know, Israel Finkelstein. You've heard that name. So there's a whole, there's a machlokis in Israel and, and around the world on how you do this Archeo biblical archaeologist thing. We used to have in Baltimore, Maryland, long ago, the most famous uh, non-Jewish Zionist archaeologist. That was William Foxville Albright. Yeah. I, I actually used to teach in his room. Yeah, he was at Hopkins. Yeah. yeah, of course. And he used to live, by the way, right next to the fire station over here. Yeah, where you vote. Yeah, that's right. So, um, uh, but see, he was... He was a Protestant guy and all the rest of it, but he was pro-Jewish. That's very unusual. Most of the guys 
in Hopkins today, that's my department, Near Eastern Studies. You know, I mean, they're not pro-Jewish. Get it? Uh, but they're uh, pro-Judaic. Now, they're not in favor of Hitler or anything like that, but you're not going to interpret the material that there was an ancient Israel or something along those lines. I was once in Jerusalem many years ago at a conference, and they had, this was during the Intifada, and they had the, the world's number one Egyptologist come and speak there. His name was Jan Asman. Nice guy, blonde hair, blue-eyed, German, non-Jewish. And he was actually doing Israel a favor because the Arabs were trying to make a boycott, don't go to Israel, of the archaeologists. And he went Badafka. So he's a good guy. But on the other hand, he's a super-duper Egyptologist. He's the number one guy. And he gave a whole speech. I forget what it was about. At the end, somebody asked him, he says, you've learned all this all your life about Egypt. What's left? Or what, you know, Do you have any questions left over? He said, I'll tell you the truth. The number one question I have is, here you had this huge Egyptian civilization and garnished, nothing left of it. And then some little stupid group left Egypt long ago and here they're chugging along today. You know, that makes no sense to me. Now, he was just speaking the truth. You know, for, now he didn't mean anything. I'll say again, he was not anti-Semitic at all. The opposite. But from an Egyptologist, from an archaeology point of view, so that's the reason I'm answering you this way, because archaeologists look at things in a certain lens. You follow? Now, they found recently some stuff from Chizkiyo, but that doesn't make a difference. We've had that stuff from Chizkiyo. There are certain biblical figures there's a lot of stuff about, and there are others not. So we want King David. We want King Solomon. We want that sort of thing, you know. King Solomon says, let's have a date tonight, you know. <laughs> yeah, a, a shidduch date. The, uh, the, you know, the, that, that's what we're looking for. That's, that we do not have. You understand? That we do not have. So what can you do? It? As you perhaps know, there is no evidence that there ever was a first temple. They've never found, that's why Arafat used to say, there was no first temple. You get it? Because, now not that he was a scientist, you know, but we have no physical stuff. Now, if the Arabs would let you dig under them, maybe they would find, you know, you never know. But meanwhile, there's nothing left from the Bayes Rishon. Uh, so are you an archaeologist? And you say it didn't exist. Or, or I'm from Missouri. I don't believe it until I see it. Other historians say, I guess, there's so many other references in other cultures to the Jewish temple, the first temple, you see that there was such a thing. Correct? But that's a historian versus an archaeologist. Is there any other questions? So then, uh, Can you talk about the date very quickly? The 25th of Kislev. Yeah, okay, yeah. So the, well... Yeah, I've done it before. For, for just to clarify, I'm glad you brought that up. Just to clarify, what is Hanukkah? Um, the, the, uh, I'll, uh, I'll give you the basic thing very, very briefly. There are three elements, A, B, and C. And this is in the original from source, what they call the Megillus Tinus, that the Talmud quotes from. The problem is the Talmud quotes selectively. Because they have, they're interested in the halachic side. How big is the menorah? How many lights? And all that sort of thing. So they don't go into all the details. But if you look at the original source, which is what Yossi is referring to, the Gilles Tinus, so it goes like this. Then on the 25th of Kislev is an eight-day holiday called Hanukkah. Why? Because of the miracle of the oil. But then it says like this. Wait a minute. That should only be a one-day holiday. The day they started the oil. There aren't any other holidays of eight days. You see? Uh, yeah, biblical. I'm saying there are no Megillus time. There are no 
made up holidays of, of eight days. It was one day. Maybe you don't know what I'm talking about. There's something called the Megillah's Tinus, the Scroll of Fasts. And that was a list of about 20, 30 dates during the year when, like we would say today, no Tachnan, no, no fasting, no Hespids, things like this. One of them is Hanukkah. The only one that survived as practice is Hanukkah. So there should be, if there was a miracle of oil, it should be the 25th of Kislev. Why is it eight days? And so it goes on to say like this, when they captured the temple, it was in trash. The Greeks had trashed it. So you, it says weeds were growing out of the, you know, grass was growing out of the walls and things like that. And, you know, it was junk all over the place. Because the Greeks didn't really, <coughs> the Macedonians didn't really maintain the base of Migdash as a site of worship. They raped it. You understand? So they messed it over. They on purpose sacrificed a pig or something like that. And they tore holes in the wall. And the truth of the matter is they set up a brothel up there. That's what they did. The sill rig. And it's all by way of showing contempt for the Jews. Okay? The Maccabees recaptured the temple about two months, or uh, close to two months, month and a half before Hanukkah. I'll say it again. They captured the temple mount about a month and a half before Hanukkah. But then you got a cleanup job. You see? In other words, you got to get rid of the old stuff lying around and scratch out all those idols on the wall, you know, like Italian funeral home, like I say, and all sort of thing. I mean, you know. And then, after you finish all that, then you got to put in the Jewish stuff, which means a new altar and new kalim and this and that and the other. And by the time they did the cleanup job, so it, was, it, it took a couple weeks. And then it took them eight days to make the new altar and the uh, silverware, shall we call it. Because the temple runs, you know, with the forks and spoons and this and that and the other clay, kalim. So it took eight days to do that. So they said, let's make the holiday eight days to remember that. Which obviously must have been very moving for them after they went through all those battles and lost so much blood that now they're making brand new Jewish vessels to use in the rebuilt temple. Uh, that's what it says in the original source. Nobody, nobody knows it because they don't look at the source. But then the question is raised like this. So what's with the candles? You know what I mean? What's with the candles? Now, the truth is, that question is based on the fact that really, 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 all you need to do is light a single candle every night. One candle the first night, one candle the second night, one candle the third night. That's the din. In other words, in like this house, we light one candle on the first night, one candle the second night. Every night would be a candle. Now, in a society when there was no electricity, how can you even tell it's Hanukkah? You and I have grown up in luxury, and we do Mahadrim and Mahadrim, so we reenact symbolically the Hanukkah story by like one first night, one the second night. So now tonight's the fourth night. I was burning for four nights. See, tomorrow they're burning for five nights. That's an aesthetic that we redo it. There's a different aesthetic, by the way, which is completely separate from that. I spoke about it last night, called Mahadrin. Not Mahadrin, Minna Mahadrin. Mahadrin goes like this. How many people in your family? That's how many you light in the window. So I don't know. You know, Who's got more than eight people in their house? Some people do. Agree? Some people do. Have more than eight people. There's two parents and seven kids. Like that. It could be. Right? So, that so no menorah. You need nine candles every night. You put the menorah people out of business. <laughs> what about if you live in Mayor Sharm? You need like two menorahs. 
well, if you have 16 people, two parents and 14 kids, which is not unheard of, it's 16 the first night, 16 the second night, 16 the third night, 16 the fourth night, it depends on the family. On the other hand, if you have a couple that's, uh, you know, kids are married off living by themselves, two the first night, two the second night, two the third night, so there's no menorah. You get it? It's, the menorah business started because of Mahadrim and Mahadrim. So everybody does, you know, the eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. But you don't have to do it that way. You can do it one, you, if you're, you don't realize. Once upon a time, people are poor. When, no, no, I'm serious. In the old world, long ago, what did poor people do at sundown? That's right. I mean, only rich people can waste money on candles and stuff like that. You know, except on rare occasion. Do you, you, I mean, that, that's how life was. People have hand to mouth. So they can't be, so, the Chacham say, oh, we're making new holiday after light candles every night. That was a tough hit on the pocketbook of many, many families. Which is why the Gemara says, you can use any cheap junk for Hanukkah candles. Even things that are not qualified for Shabbos candles are, yes, qualified for Hanukkah candles. You can scratch the stuff off the side of the tree, off the bottom of the boat, the cocoons left over from the, you know, from the things. You can use it. That's what poor families did once upon a time. You understand? Uh, rich families can do anything, but poor families couldn't do that. So that's why you can't require more than a single candle per night. You follow? It's, it's, it's an economic thing. Now, if you want to be Mahadra, Mahadra, you can afford it, give them to hate. But all you have to do is one. Okay? And again, the family has ten children. I mean, you know, if you can afford it. Or otherwise, they just, they just did one. Okay? So, all this has to do with the question, why did they light the candles on Hanukkah? Because what's that got to do with celebrating a Miguel's Tainas Day? And so what it says over there is, that, they, that when they started up the base Amikdush again on the Jewish system, they didn't have a menorah yet. Because a menorah, you need a Michelangelo. You need a block of, of gold, and then it has to be built from the inside. So you have, you know, eight, I mean, you have seven uh, branches, hollow, with pomegranates engraved in it from the inside. I mean, that's, you need, like I say, Leonardo da Vinci or something like that. You know, I mean, highly skilled craftsman, goldsmith, not your regular goldsmith. Didn't have that in the battlefield conditions of the Maccabean War. And so it says they took seven spears, they tied them together, they put something on the top to hold the oil, and that was the menorah. Until later on when things got better. Now, you might say that that's a cheap operation, you know, take seven spears. Now, I'm going to ask you the following question. If you lived at that time, let me put it this way. Let's speak in American terms. Are you allowed to burn the flag? Yes. Do you want to burn the flag in front of somebody who is a Iwo Jima or Omaha Beach? They, they don't want to see that. It's not what they want to see. You understand? Because they said too many lives were sacrificed for this flag. You have the constitutional right to do it. But that, that, that's not what they want to see. So when they put up the seven um, spears, Shibush Budiates, the seven spears, and they lit the candles on that, so 
the symbolism, let, let me put it this way, all the people who were there were in the Maccabean armies. How many of them lost family, friends, comrades, you know, fellow GIs, as they say today, or killed everybody. So the symbolism of the light on the spears, they got the, you know, and then they go through eight days, it's it's, it's overwhelming. So they said, in order to remember the seven spears, light the candles every year. Now, here we go with history and memory. That's what it says in the original source. Nobody thinks this way today. Then we think, you know, light the candles cause it a, cause it a, you know, the, cause it a miracle. Um, so all I'm tr- trying to say is Hanukkah is a perfect example of the Tzimishkite, uh, you know, the interweaving of history and memory. Uh, I like the history part. That's, that's who I am, as you know. Uh, are, there any, are there any other questions? Yeah? Actually made of wood, is that correct? No. No. That was King Solomon. He had unlimited checkbook. The guy was loaded up the gills. Because I, I, I read someplace No, no, I know you're talking. The, the, the second temple, first version. There have been three temples so far. Okay. Am I right? There were three temples so far. There's the first temple, then there was one built by Ezra Nehemiah, which was wood, and then the third one by Herod. That's what we see today. So that was built also fancy. The was burned. Is that 586? That's the first temple. Oh, and when was the second burn? 70 AD. Oh, 70? Yeah, 70 AD. You go to Rome, and you see the Arch of Titus, and they'll, they'll give you the whole spiel there. Herod's temple is... That is it. Herod's temple was, was burned. Okay. I think it's late, so I'll, I'll, I'll free on a captive audience. So, uh, once again, and we should all be able to celebrate in the future in good health. Amen. Amen. That's it. Yeah, it's a good thing you asked that.